Welcome to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter. Sponsored by Government Marketing University. Here's today's moderator, Luann Brosman. Welcome to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing with hot topics, best practices, exciting guests, and innovative tools. Market Chat is an ongoing series that provides open and collaborative interaction between government and industry, where we strive to ensure that our listeners walk away empowered with greater knowledge on how to better market to their targeted federal, state, and local audiences. I'm Luann Brosman. I'm the CEO and founder of Government Marketing University, and I have my co-host with me today, Steve Watkins, who is our Chief Content Officer. How are you doing today, Steve? Hey, great, Luann. Good to be here. Oh, always wonderful to have this, this, these episodes. This is our 21st episode of Market Chat. So we've been doing this a while with Federal News Network and we love every one of these. I'm really excited about our topic and our guest today. You know, we've all been living and breathing, no surprise to anybody, COVID-19. So now we're coming out of it. So what we're gonna talk about today is really, what does it look like to be a government marketer um, or a sales rep or a business development rep on the industry side, selling into the government post COVID-19. And with that, we've got two really exciting guests joining us today that have a lot of insight that they're gonna share with us on this topic. I'd like to first introduce Jeff Neal. Jeff is an author and principal for uh, Chief HRO, and he's also the former Chief Human Capital Officer for the Department of Homeland Security. And Jeff, I'm really excited to have you on because marketers always talk about wanting to get more visibility in front of Chico's, but we really don't do it a lot. So I'm excited to have you here and have you add your insight. So thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. And we also have our good friend and our strategic partner over at Market Connections, Aaron Heffron. He's the president with over 20 years experience in this market. Marketers are very familiar with Market Connections and all the great research that they do. Uh, I'll be talking with Aaron specifically in our third segment of this Market Chat program, talking about their recent survey where they interviewed over 600 government decision makers around content needs. So um, excited to have you here, Aaron, and hear what you have to say. Thanks, Luann. Look forward to it. All right. So as I mentioned, today it's all about marketing to the government in a post-COVID environment. So we're going to talk about a few things in these first two segments that Steve's going to lead with Jeff. And that's around uh, talking about technology, talking about the remote workforce, which is really interesting because all of us marketers are trying to figure out how do we reach the new world of the uh, remote workforce. Training and education, in-person events. Marketers are asking us all the time, what is that looking like? When's government going to be going back to in-person events? A lot of our vendors, we're starting to see that they are um, planning in-person events. So how successful can we think that they will be? A lot of demographics um, and some other tidbits that we'll be covering with Jeff. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be covering some of the survey topics that I found really intriguing that I want to talk to with Aaron of his content survey. So Steve, with that, I'm going to pass it over to you. Great. Thanks, Luann. Uh, yeah, this is an exciting uh, uh, topic, I, I think, just because of the, the hugely dis, uh, disruptive uh, kind of last year and a half that we've all gone through and what is that going to mean for our, our marketing uh, audience? And Jeff, I think you're in a particularly great uh, position to kind of discuss with us uh, some of the big changes that uh, we can expect to see uh, as we kind of all emerge out of the, uh, the, the COVID uh, uh, period of the last uh, year and a half or so. Uh, besides being a, a Chico at DHS, you've also uh, got plenty of experience from uh, the Defense Department. You've been a, a senior executive through uh, much of your career. And, and uh, since you've retired from government, you've been uh, closely following uh, uh, a lot of the, uh, the current uh, federal issues that are affecting the workforce. So uh, I guess I'll start by just asking kind of in broad terms, um, how do you think the last year and a half uh, of, of the pandemic has changed government and the way it operates and thinks and, and what kind of permanent impacts uh, do you see being left uh, as it as it relates to government organizations and day-to-day and -day operations? Well, Steve, I think that's a, that is a pretty broad question. You know, when we look at the, the federal government and what happened, you know, we had a government where a very large number of managers just didn't like the idea of remote work. And they said their employees just couldn't do it. 
and that it wasn't practical. They didn't have the technology to do it. They had a, a million reasons why it would never work. And then COVID hit. And then all of a sudden, those same managers were told, okay, you can risk people's lives and literally kill people by forcing them to come into offices, or you can have total mission failure, or you can find some way to make remote work work. And uh, most people being not stupid, uh, picked C and, and went with find a way to make it work. And so what we found in the last year and a half is that for the most part, telework does work. Uh, federal employees, a lot of federal employees can work remotely. So, so that particular uh, fallacy that, that people simply couldn't telework in, in a great many jobs, I think has been completely destroyed. So, and, and that's not going to go away. So we're going to continue to see significant amounts of remote work in the federal government. And, and you know, I don't know where it's going to land. It could be, uh, it's most likely not gonna be quite as much as we had at the peak of the pandemic, but we're, we're definitely going to see significantly more telework than we've ever seen uh, pre-pandemic. So I think that's gonna be a, a big deal. The other thing we're gonna find though, is that, that agencies, are going to be having, um, they're going to be having problems with having different classes of employees treated in different ways. So, you know, it's, it's very likely that you're going to see a lot of people who are in higher grade levels doing, um, doing work that is really thought work, where they're really not interacting directly with agency customers. Um, or they're not doing things that require hands-on work. And those folks are going to get to, to stay working at home a lot. Then you're going to find people who are in what generally are lower-graded or middle-graded jobs who can't telework. You know, if you're a transportation security officer at TSA, we're not going to send passengers to your bedroom for screening. Um, we're going to send them uh, to the airport. And so you're going to have to show up at the airport. If you're working in a naval shipyard or an Air Force air logistics, an air logistics center, you know, we're not going to send the airplanes and the ships to your houses to work. You're going to have to show up. Uh, if you're working for the Defense Logistics Agency in one of their distribution centers and you're physically handling boxes of material, you're going to have to come in to physically handle those boxes of material. So we're going to have a lot of employees who are kind of the haves and the have-nots. And I think that's going to create some real leadership challenges in government. They're gonna to have to think very differently now about how they interact with the workforce and how, if you've got employees who can't benefit from remote work, how do you deal with their morale issues and make certain that they don't start feeling like they're the second class citizens? The other side of that is some people are gonna look at it and say, wow, you know, if I'm not in the office every day, you know, out of sight, out of mind, um, you know, maybe they're not going to think of me when it comes to a promotion. They might be thinking of the person who comes into the office every day and sees the boss every day, uh, assuming the boss is coming into the office every day. So, so I, think, I think what we saw is it basically um, totally upset lots of, of of uh, false perceptions about telework. It's going to change how the federal workplace works for decades to come. And right now we don't know exactly what that's gonna look like. You know, that's, it's interesting. What you were just saying reminds me, I was uh, reminded of, there was a, an article actually in Federal News Network uh, uh, in May about the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, which they do every year. They've been doing it for many years now. Uh, essentially an, a nice snapshot every year of kind of where federal employees are in terms of their job satisfaction on, on a lot of different kind of levels. But one of the things that the article pointed out was that before the pandemic, just 3% of the federal workforce was teleworking every day. And then at the peak of the pandemic, that number rose up to 59% of federal employees teleworking every day. 
It's a reflection. We we don't know exactly how accurate that is from, you know, from I'm sure it varies uh, from agency to agency, but that gives you a sense of the scope of kind of what was happening because of the pandemic. And I think another interesting data point there, talking to your point about the, the false perceptions that, that existed before the pandemic. So um, before the, prior to the pandemic, 24% of federal employees uh, said they did not telework uh, because they had to be physically present on the job. And then that number went down to 16% at the peak of the pandemic, which really tells you that, you know, mindsets do shift in times like these. And, uh, and I think that's a perfect example of that. Um, I think one of the things about telework that is that I think certainly our audience is, is, is very mindful of is that it, it really brings home the importance uh, of, of technology and IT, I think, to kind of the day-to-day the -day functioning of a lot of uh, federal organizations. Um, what's your, your sense of kind of how everyday federal employees as well as agency leaders and managers are kind of changing their views in terms of the role that technology plays in, uh, as a you know, a, a critical enabler to their mission success. Well, I, I think when you when you look at technology, it you know, over the last thirty years, forty years, technology has become more and more integral to the day to day work of federal employees. And you know, it used to be that you <coughs> you might have a system that you use, um, but you know, it wasn't how people did all of their work. Now what we're finding is that a lot of people spend a huge amount of their time uh, in front of a screen. And so technology is very important to their work. And what we found during telework is that technology uh, was absolutely essential. It was, you know, it was not quite as close to oxygen, but pretty darn close. And so people couldn't couldn't interact with other people without some sort of technology. They couldn't have access to data. They couldn't have uh, the workflow that they uh, would have uh, otherwise without technology. And we did find in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey pretty clearly that there were, uh, you know, we found that, that pretty clearly that there were a lot of employees who said that they would have preferred to get better technological support than they, than they had gotten. And so they were, they were not entirely happy with the level of tech support they got. So I think what we're going to find is, is this is going to get more and more important. And things that were conveniences like, well, like Zoom, for example, or, or Microsoft Teams or any of the other video conferencing software, um, those things were kind of nice to haves. And all of a sudden, they became absolutely essential. Uh, and so that, I think changes how people how people are going to, to look at technology. One of the other things is that you know in the private sector where a lot of people do remote work because number one they know it works and number two buildings are expensive and being able to, to get rid of office space is a is frequently a, a, a huge cost savings. You know they've been very good at providing you know, for example a technology stipend to an employee and uh, paying for an employee to have a cell phone, paying for an employee to have um, a broadband internet connection. Uh, and in many cases, uh, giving employees uh, a stipend to use their own computer rather than the government paying for a, a computer for them. And I think what we're gonna find now is government is gonna have to, to uh, although somewhat late to the party, they're gonna have to start doing more of that. You know, the government can't expect its employees to work from home and then say, and by the way, you provide all the tech, you know, all the technology that you need to do that. And uh, so I think what we're going to see is, is more agencies are going to be looking at how they can support their employees from working, uh, working from home, how they're going to make that, that their workflow uh, adapt 
to the, the to the work being done in multiple locations by many people, and that's really going to be a a pretty big shift in the government. And I think it's it's going to be a worthwhile shift. Yeah, I I think you're exactly right about that, Jeff. That's those are all important points. And I think in our next segment we'll we'll dive a little bit further into that in terms of what that support might look like, especially in the way of uh, training and exposure to uh, some of the new technologies that are emerging in the marketplace that uh, that employees are going to uh, be uh, required to use or or need to use uh, to to do their jobs, especially from a remote environment. So, Luann, I think uh, this has been. Uh, uh, these are terrific insights, and we'll um, we'll explore these a little bit further in the next segment. You bet. Thank you. I think it was awesome too, and I really one of the takeaways I have is the telework. You know, telework's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow, and I know that's something that government marketers have been working on for a while. So here's your time, listeners, to really get those telework marketing programs underway. All right, everybody. So we do need to take a break. So please stay with us as we talk about government marketing in a post-COVID-19 world. You are listening to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing, brought to you by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network. Government Marketing University is an innovative learning platform that applies a collaborative, community-based approach towards knowledge sharing and skills development in the field of public sector marketing. Experts from all corners of the U.S. public sector marketplace, marketers, thought leaders, government, media, and sales, are contributing their knowledge to this unique, content-rich platform. Government Marketing University offers training, research, certifications, mentoring, and community resources all in one place. Learn more at gmarku.com. Welcome back to Market Chat by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network, where we bring clarity to the clutter in government marketing. In this episode of Market Chat, we're talking about government marketing in a post-COVID-19 world. We're very honored to have our special guest with us today. We have Jeff Neal, who is an author and founding principal uh, for Chief HRO. And we have Aaron Heffern, who is the president of Market Connections. Steve Watkins, who is our chief technology, uh, I'm sorry, chief content officer at Government Marketing University, and myself, Luann Brassman, are really happy that you're listening to our program today. We've been having great discussions between uh, Steve and Jeff, and I'm going to toss it back over to Steve to continue that talk. Great. Thanks, Luann. Um, so, Jeff, yes, in the, in the last segment, we were talking about uh, the kind of increasing importance of uh, technology support for employees, uh, the, incre the increasing importance of technology period in terms of being a central uh, tool uh, for federal employees to, to get their jobs done, whether it's on the business side or on the, <clears throat> on the mission side of, of their agency. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, training and education and how that fits in. Do you do you see uh, an evolving role um, for training and education, uh, given what we've all just been through? Uh, yeah, Steve, I do. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping we'll see is more emphasis on training and education. You know, one of the things you find frequently with federal agencies is they'll go out and spend a lot of money on technology and then not spend a lot of money training the employees how to use the technology, then they don't get the benefits they expected out of the technology and they blame the technology when the problem was really that they didn't train their employees how to use it. Um, so, so training is a, is a vital need in government. And it's actually not just technology training, it's, it's really uh, lots of types of job specific training. Uh, and, and government really doesn't invest adequately in training its employees. You know, in most agencies, they don't want to put together uh, a training budget because people have been convinced that in, in the bureaucratic warfare that goes on over budgets, that if you have a, a pot of money labeled as training, the second somebody wants to cut something, they're gonna cut training. You know, the two things you always, what, what are the two things people cut if you tell them to cut something out of their budget? Travel and training. That's the first thing they go after. So if you have a, a big pot of money that you're identifying as a training budget, 
a lot of people would view it as vulnerable. So they don't tend to adequately fund training. Uh, they also frequently will say, well, you know, if I don't spend money on training, I can hire another employee. And so I'll, I'll go with the employee rather than the training. So, you know, the thinking generally like that is, you know, I'd rather have uh, a bunch of poorly trained employees instead of a smaller number of highly trained employees. I, I don't entirely agree with that logic. As a matter of fact, I disagree with it. But I, I think we're going to have to rethink how a lot of training is done because you know, a lot of training, there's a lot of training that is, is computer-based training that ha there has been for years. Uh, and some of that's very good. Some of it's not very good. Uh, but there, there still is a need for some in-person training. And I think what we're going to find now is as we have more and more people working remotely, uh, opportunities to have in-person events are going to be more important you know, because a lot of these employees are not going to see one another very often. And, uh, and you, you lose some things when that happens. You, know, you lose you lose a lot of the creativity that you get out of people running into one another and just having a discussion about something they're working on. Um, you lose the connection sometimes that comes from just being able to see people walking around in the same office you're working in. You know, you don't just see people walking around on Zoom. So you're gonna lose some things like that. Um, and then the, the networking that goes on uh, in, various types of meetings, particularly when you're particularly when you're doing interagency meetings. You know, you start networking and you build those networks and those networks are incredibly helpful. Um, you know, there there have been many times when I've been dealing with a problem and I recall talking to somebody from some other agency about a similar problem. And so I can, you know, I could pick up the phone and call them and say, you know, could we, could we meet and talk about this? Because I remember you had a similar problem to mine. So I think we're gonna find that, that the, the need for training is actually increased. We're gonna have to rethink some of how that training goes on. And then we're gonna have to, to, to very consciously provide for more opportunities for people to, to get together in person because the, they're not gonna be getting together in person every single day in a lot of agencies. Well, one of the things that, for instance, our, our audience of, of uh, technology marketers uh, is very familiar with is, is the, the whole uh, practice of holding live events, in-person events uh, that are more, I would say, education-oriented as opposed to training-oriented, although some are training-oriented. Uh, but primarily, they, they serve an educational purpose to uh, educate federal employees, federal leaders about kind of what's happening in terms of emerging technology in the marketplace and, and how a lot of those technologies uh, can, can really help advance uh, federal operations, federal missions. Um, what's your take there in terms of whether we can kind of get back to, you know, the way things were, or do you think, um, uh, things are going to look differently with respect to some of those in-person events that, like I say, are more kind of educational in nature. Well, I, th I think the in-person events are still going to happen. Uh, I think they're going to be more important, probably, rather than less important. Um, I, I do think that... that um, some people are going to say, well, you know, if, if, if what we're talking about is it is an in-person event that is educational in nature and primarily you're conveying information about new things that are happening and solutions that people have come up with uh, to particular types of problems um, some people are going to say well you know you can do that on zoom you know there's no reason to have people in person to do that but i mean realistically we know that firms that are sponsoring things like that are doing it partly to share information because they're wonderful, good Americans, and partly because they want the opportunity to interact with those folks in the agencies. And a Zoom interaction, um, a Zoom interaction is is you know is not that good when it comes to trying to have 
to just have a conversation with somebody and try to build some sort of relationship with them. It's, it's, Zoom is not the same. And so I think that people who are trying to market to the government really should continue to try to, to provide opportunities for in-person events, uh, or at least do hybrid events where, you know, say you're doing something in the Washington DC metro area, that people in the DC area could go to the event, but somebody who's working in Utah, you know, could come into the event via uh, some some video conferencing platform. But I, I do think that the they're going to need substitutes for those in-person interactions that they had every day before. And I also think that for people who are marketing in government, you know, one of the things that's really important is when you have people working on site they're able to actually go around and talk to people and learn about what's going on and you know, where the agency is thinking of, of making investments. And it, it's just a, you know, when, you, when you're on site with a client, it's a really, really good opportunity to market to them in a way that's, that's not obnoxious. Um, and that goes away if that particular group uh, where you have the contract is working remotely. Uh, it's a different type of interaction. And so I, so I do think people who are in that situation and who rely very heavily on marketing to existing clients through on-site relationships, they're gonna have to rethink how they want to market to those clients. And that's gonna be a little different world for them. And some people will probably adapt fairly easily and others may struggle with it. That's a, a wonderful point, I think. And um, I, I guess I'd like to follow that up with, with a question, which is, you know, a lot of uh, tech companies tend to zero in in terms of their marketing approaches and, and sales approaches and zero in on the, on the IT leaders, the CIOs and the, the deputy CIOs, maybe the administrators of the, of the data centers and so forth. Um, but, you know, with, with what we just went through with the, with the pandemic, uh, it seems to me that, you know, everybody is more mindful of technology, the role of IT, perhaps, uh, I know I am, I, I've, I've been, uh, you know, repairing my, my, my kids' computers, uh, you know, when they conk out during virtual learning. And so I think everybody's to some degree has kind of stepped up their IT game a bit. Um, how do you think that might impact the way uh, tech vendors might approach uh, federal employees, federal leaders uh, from a marketing perspective? Well, I, I think when you when you look at that, uh, sometimes if you're if you're focused entirely on the CIO, you may be limiting your focus unnecessarily and in a way that, that that's not helpful. You know, there are there are tools that agencies use like, you know, like Zoom um, that are broad, that everybody uses them. The CIO generally has the money for those things in their budget and they make uh, the decisions about what to buy. The, the problem is that a lot of other technology that's used is work process specific. And there are process owners, you know, for example, if you're if you're looking at buying something related to talent management, the process owner is probably the chief human capital officer. And he or she probably has the money for that in their budget, or at least has some, some say on it. So if you're trying to sell something like that and you're marketing only to the CIO, you're marketing to, to uh, one of the decision makers, but you're not marketing to the person who necessarily has the money. And it, you know it's always, I always like the opportunity to talk to somebody who, uh, who has some influence over some program that I'm trying to, to get somebody to adopt. But it's also more important, I think, to talk to the person who has the money for that thing because you know, they, they, they get to make uh, some of the decisions. And, and so it's important that they, they look at, at who is involved in the decision-making and not limit it just to the CIO. You know, um, I, I was uh, 
I saw another uh, recent article in Federal News Network, and this one had to do more with kind of the one of the fears among some federal leaders in the post-pandemic era is uh, turnover. Uh, and seeing a lot of federal employees uh, jump ship uh, to, to other employers, they could be other government agencies uh, or the commercial sector, what have you, where there are more opportunities, for instance, to do remote work, what have you. Um, do you see uh, or are you anticipating any kind of change in the demographic of, of the federal government uh, in the next couple of years uh, that may be accelerated because of the pandemic? You know, right now, the demographics of the federal government are, are kind of interesting because the, the government has more people over 60 than it has under 30. And so right now, the federal government tends to skew to, to, the, uh, to the gray-haired end of the spectrum. And um, if the government sticks with the idea of remote work and continues trying to make it available to as many people as possible, then they may find they're able to recruit more younger people into government. Uh, if they don't, they may find that they exacerbate that problem that already exists. And that long-term for the government is an, is an enormous problem because the people that you hire today are the talent you need for your mid-career jobs in a few years. And uh, if you don't hire younger people right now, you, you basically hollow out your workforce over a period of time. So I think that's going to be incredibly important. Um, I also do think that, that there are going to be some kind of unexpected things that happen as a result of this. I got an interesting letter from a, uh, a reader who said that she is working at home and likes her work for the first time in her entire career. Uh, because she was being harassed by an obnoxious boss. And now she never has to see her obnoxious boss except on a computer screen. And she said now she feels safe. And she didn't feel safe before. And I think we're going to find lots of stories that uh, about things that we didn't think about. You know, we think about the work and the mission and, and the processes. And we don't necessarily think as much as we should about the about the, the people and the challenges that people face. Um, there are people who get freaked out in traffic. There are people who get, you know, who get bullied by people at work. There are so many things that, that remote work can address. And that could help, uh, I think, with, uh, with a lot of people's work lives. And so I, I think what we're gonna see is, is telework use correctly can be something that attracts people to government. And if you don't use it and you're working in a, people are working in an industry where a lot of people work remotely, uh, telework is gonna be the thing that employees use uh, to negotiate for jobs. And if I'm a federal agency and I won't offer telework, but somebody else in the government or in the private sector will, and an employee wants telework, they're gonna walk. And the government's going to lose those employees if, they, if they're not careful. And in some occupations, like cybersecurity, for example, they can't afford to lose them. They simply cannot afford it. You know, that's, you've given us uh, some, some fantastic insights, I think, into uh, the, the changing nature, I think, of government. Um, and, you know, like you said, uh, in the IT sector, there's so many sectors uh, in, in government that are really critical and mission critical that is to to the government performing uh, all the services that that's needed. Uh, Luann, I we've got uh, uh, so much here to, to I know Steve it's just so much great insight and and but it's time for a break so Jeff we've really enjoyed having you on today's program and we'd love to have you back. I think you've got a lot more information that would really help our government marketers do their jobs better. Happy to do it. All righty. All right, everybody. So we do need to take a break. So please stay with us as we talk about government marketing in a post-COVID-19 world. You're listening to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing, brought to you by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network.
Government Marketing University is an innovative learning platform that applies a collaborative, community-based approach towards knowledge sharing and skills development in the field of public sector marketing. Experts from all corners of the U.S. public sector marketplace, marketers, thought leaders, government, media, and sales, are contributing their knowledge to this unique, content-rich platform. Government Marketing University offers training, research, certifications, mentoring, and community resources all in one place. Learn more at gmarku.com. Welcome back to Market Chat by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network, where we bring clarity to the clutter in government marketing. In today's episode, we're talking about government marketing in a post-COVID-19 world. We're very honored to have our two guests with us today. We've been listening to Jeff Neal. Jeff is an author and principal of the Chief HRO, and he also is the former Chief Human Capital Officer for the Department of Homeland Security, as well as other agencies. And one thing, Jeff, I have not done yet is to say thank you for your service. And um, now what we're going to do is jump into a discussion with Aaron Heffron. As I mentioned earlier, Aaron is the president of Market Connections, which most government marketers that are listening are very familiar with. They've been a trusted partner of all of ours for a very long time. They are a strategic partner with Government Marketing University, which means we do a lot of joint initiatives together. Uh, recently, uh, they published the, one of their many annual surveys, and we're talking today about the survey that they put out around content. And they interviewed, what, Aaron, over 600 um, government decision makers? Yep, yep, that was the case. And again, thank you, Luann, and, and thank you to GMARC U for the partnership uh, and being able to do things like this. I think it's a great opportunity for folks to get some information and get some insights directly from uh, the horse's mouth. No offense, Jeff, um, there as we go. <laughs> But the, I could uh, not agree more. So tell the, us a little uh, bit about this survey. What prompted it? Yeah, so the content marketing uh, study that we've been doing is really, uh, we've been doing it for 10 years now. And it was really in response to the understanding that one of the best pathways to get information and, and get into the offices of those that you're targeting is to deliver information. I mean, education is key uh, in all of this. And we were trying to figure out and we were constantly getting the question of what is the best kind of content and what is the what are the vehicles that really deliver in the best possible way in the best possible format those nuggets and informational points that are needed so years ago we started it with focused on the federal audience itself and over the years we have expanded it to this year where we have really cast a broad net across the full public sector so federal audience, uh, that's both civilian and defense, uh, state and local governments, educational uh, entities, that's both K-12 and higher education, and really an attempt to look at these public sector entities, these folks that are bound by some level of rules and regulations and processes that are a little different than the commercial world. Uh, and how they get that information. So we interviewed 600, 200 in each of those buckets, federal, state, local, and education, uh, to really dive down into those formats and understand not only the differences at those different levels, but also within the business development process. I mean, we all go through these stages of fact-finding and down-selects of vendors and final decisions and all of those areas require different types of content and we have found a really uh, you know require different formats that connect with people at the best point of time uh, for them great and i know that there are a lot of of we could talk for six hours a lot of great insight um but before we get into some of the points that i found really interesting tell us a little bit about where our listeners can go find this report yeah, so this report uh, we have made available. It's uh, for download, for sale and download on our website. If you go to uh, marketconnections.com, um, you can get that. Uh, you can get that information. You can download it. There's a presentation. Uh, you'll also hear my wonderful voiceover, uh, whether you want it or not. Uh, and then we also have the. Uh, Breakouts will be coming within the next month. We will have some individual reports that focus just on the federal, just on the state and local, and just on the education uh, segment. So if you are a sled marketer and you just have one area you want to go into, you can go there. If you're just fed, you can get that information as well. Okay, great information. All right, so let's kind of jump into some of the points. So one of the things that 
you asked was around the features that make content worth their time. And I know I've heard you say about this survey um, that you feel, and this ties into what Jeff mentioned earlier on our program today, that you feel like content during COVID was really replacing the intimate customer conversations over the past year. Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, Jeff made some great points about how teleworking uh, changed the way people work and the way they're interacting with each other. Uh, and, you know, it also is changing and has changed the way that we have to market to those individuals as federal marketers, uh, because those personal interactions, those incidental walk-bys, those meetups at conferences and events uh, are going to be more difficult uh, and they're going to be less frequent. I mean, they were not frequent at all over the past year and a half, uh, but even going forward, I don't think they're going, they're not going to be structured and shaped the way we historically have known them. So we've got to figure out a way, uh, as Jeff alluded to, to leverage different platforms to get the information there, um, utilize the in-person events that will come uh, for their best and highest purposes and not waste time at those events on things that can be delivered virtually or in a content format. So I think what we really saw is over the past 18 months, uh, after the first initial kind of shock of it all and everybody trying to get their feet underneath them, is that everybody really turned a lot to this content heavy, thought leadership heavy type of marketing uh, strategy where uh, they're writing white papers, they're putting together research reports, they're trying to do even video demonstrations uh, of what they've got to really try to deliver the same kind of experience. Um, and I think the ones that were most successful were the, were the marketers that realized that we cannot exactly replicate an in-person event online. I think we all experienced the folks that tried to do that um, and suffered through some pretty, let's say, interesting events. Uh, A lot that, of lessons learned. Yeah, so we kind of... Uh, we kind of figured that out after the first, you know, couple months. We're like, yeah, this stuff does just doesn't work. So we need to figure out, okay, there are other ways. And and there are there were folks that became successful in connecting by creating those shorter video clips. You know, I, I think I've run into more kind of video white papers that I I, I never thought that really would be a thing uh, that became a thing. And they were not sexy. They were not, you know, particularly dynamic. They were a engineer sitting in front of a whiteboard, sketching things and talking about things. But they were incredibly popular because it, you, you kind of got a faux sense of intimacy from that uh, connection you had in that type of content. And it gave you the real technical in the weeds details that everybody wanted. Um, you know, that, and that's what people went to white papers for. They went to reports for is to get those things in the weeds. And I think by overlaying a little bit of video on top, all of a sudden it became a, uh, something that was much more attractive to them. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And one of the things you talked about was putting content on uh, different platforms, right? And that goes back to what we teach at GMARQU, one to many, you know, take your message and just push it out to many different places and, and don't mix your messages, yeah, Very back when I back when I worked with public television helping create digital content, there we used to have a a cope c o p e uh, message. It was create it once, play it everywhere, mm, and that I like was that. you would create a certain chunks of content that would work, you know, for video drop-ins. They would work for interstitials. They would work on digital platforms. Uh, you made a modular so that they could be used. And I, I see that same kind of thing is that you create those nuggets of information that folks, and you just play it out everywhere, um, put it out there and people can, it can find people where they are. And that's what we really need to do because some will be sitting in their offices in the coming months. Some will be sitting at home. Some will be sitting in traffic. Uh, so you, the ways you can meet Some will them. be sitting on the beach. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I wish. Listening I, to I that podcast. Yes, the summer will certainly, I, I don't know if I will listen to a digital marketing podcast <laughs> while at the beach, but if that's your, if that's your game, go for it. <laughs>
you know, I like that cope. I might, I might use that. I think there's a blog behind that. We'll give you some credit on that. Um, you know, the other thing is talking about the content worth. And, and we've all said for how many years content is king. And I think during COVID that really, that obviously has proven that. One of the things I found really interesting when it was uh, the question that we're talking about around content that makes it worth their time of government decision makers to, to read. One of it was very high on the list was aligns with my interests, which falls right in step with agency-based marketing and talking about the mission of the agency. So both of those still have a lot of life and will continue to have life. They will. And, and I will say, you know, in a perfect world, we would all love to be able to make content that is specifically tailored to every single person that we're marketing to. Um, but I will say that for many marketers, that's just not a feasible thing to do because they may be a one person shop or a, a two person shop and you can't create it for everybody and make it tailored for everybody. So what I think is really important is to customize as much as you can. Uh, so, but still realize that if I can get it 75 to 85% of the way tailored, then that's good enough um, for many cases. I mean, much of this marketing material is meant to provide the basic air cover and kind of prime the pump for the salespeople to pick up the phone or the other folks to call in, uh, set up meetings and take them that last 10 to 15% mm -hmm. on the way there. So I think that it's important for marketers to uh, do that agency-based marketing, um, use and think about it though from the sense of what are some of those messages and what are some of those elements that I can make work across a number of different agencies. And you have to understand that. You have to know your agencies in order to be able to do that and think about your agencies and clusters of need uh, from that perspective. So you may think that DHS and justice and DOD, that may be a cluster of needs where it's not true agency-based marketing, um, but it's kind of a mega agency-based right. marketing exactly. um, where you think of it and you can kind of create it that way. And then um, I'll give those other tools to the sales and, and the ground troops that are then going in and to be able to uh, to talk to those very specific details. Yeah, and you know, a, a really easy way for marketers to do it, and it goes back to your cope, you know, uh, create once, play everywhere, which is do a white paper on your solution and then do a cover page that really zeroes in either on if it's DOD, if it's civilian, if it's Intel, if it's systems integrators, or better yet, you can zero in on a particular agency. That way you're not recreating the wheel multiple times, you're writing one white paper and you're customizing it on the executive summary page. Yeah, and I also think, um, Luann, I know one of your other um, tent poles that you like to uh, to put up there is the persona-based uh, marketing as well. Absolutely. Is that it may not necessarily, uh, your messaging and your solution may not necessarily fit perfectly into an agency bucket, but it may fit very nicely into a program manager or a uh, IT you know, CTO type of perspective where uh, it kind of spans the agency. If I'm a, if I have a chief technology officer or an IT specialist, even in those areas, you know, regardless of what agency I sit in, I have many shared similar problems and issues that my fellow technology people have at a variety of different agencies. So if you can get that content to speak to those individuals as well. So think of your marketing both from an agency vertical, but also from a job role and responsibility horizontal. Yeah, and we're going to be doing a lot more training with GMarkU on that. And that leads us into the next discussion point because you know everybody thinks the CIO is the holy grail. And it's really important that the CIO is aware, but boy, the CIO, and there's a lot of other personas underneath that CIO office that carries budgets. So you've got to make sure. And one of the things I was really... I wouldn't say the fascinated, but maybe fascinated with is when you ask the question in the survey about what types of content they find most valuable. Demos, trials, and past performances popped up. I don't think that past performances is any surprise. But when you looked at the federal, state, local, and education, which are the audiences that you surveyed, number two, top of the list was product demos. For state, local, and education, number one was product demos. So listeners, you know, team up with your engineers and make sure that you've got your marketing spin on your demos. 
and create video demos, um, create infographic demos. They're all available, but that's something that clearly in market connections research on content government wants. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what I mentioned a little bit earlier about the engineer sitting in front of the whiteboard is that in a demonstration, it seems much more personal um, and you can create that sort of connection that uh, with the individual by providing them content. I mean, they may want the product demos, but as part of those product demos, they really want the nuts and bolts of what does it mean. So it's one nice thing to have some great glitzy animated product demo and you know with gee whiz type of graphics and swoopins and all those sorts of things. But you don't want to lose the content for the glamour of it all. So you don't necessarily have to go into huge um, production quant production level, uh, you know, in there and, you know, and spend a lot of money on that in order to make it work. Um, what you have to do is just get your sleeves rolled up, give them the data and information they want, give them the nuggets so that they can take those three or four notes that they write down and say, okay, that checks that box, that checks that box. And when I'm asked this question by my colleague, I have this answer. So yeah. making sure you have those specifications and things embedded within those demonstrations is definitely the way to, um, uh, to build those out. Couldn't agree more. And again, I mentioned earlier, we could go on for six hours, but our time is up. So I really encourage our listeners to go to www.marketconnections.com um, and purchase and download this report. It will make your life very easy. Well, Jeff and Aaron, thank you so much for being our guest today. Steve, as always, it's great having uh, you as our sidekick in this. And all of our listeners, we really appreciate that you take time out of your crazy busy days to come and listen to our Market Chat radio. So time for us to sign off until next time. So thank you for listening to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing, brought to you by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network. Thank you for listening to Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter. Sponsored by Government Marketing University on Federal News Network.